You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Two potential state cyber attacks look more like, respectively, an accident and a conventional crime. U.S. government officials double down on warnings of Kaspersky connections to the Kremlin, and Australia's government isn't buying Huawei's protests that it's not working for the PLA either. Rope maker attacks could inject malicious code into email after it's been delivered, and some teasers on the Chertoff Group's security series. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 24, 2017. We begin with two cautionary tales of commendable caution. First, the U.S. Navy hasn't ruled out the possibility that a cyber attack may have contributed to the collision between the destroyer USS John S. McCain and a merchant tanker in the Straits of Malacca off Singapore this week. That possibility, however, now seems increasingly unlikely. The commander of the U.S. 7th Fleet has been relieved. His seniors have lost confidence in his leadership of the fleet. Suspicion that there could have been a cyber attack at the root of the tragedy was based on the a priori possibility that navigation technology could be affected by a threat actor. Indeed, there were reports in June of GPS spoofing conducted by Russian operators against shipping in the Black Sea. That spoofing appears to have been a trial or proof of concept. There were other reasons to find the collision suspicious. It was the fourth collision involving a 7th Fleet ship in less than a year, which struck many observers as far too high for coincidence. The investigation continues and is likely to be thorough. We'll follow the story as it develops, but for now at least, it seems the incident was one of seamanship, not cybersecurity. The other story is out of Ukraine, which today celebrates the anniversary of its independence. Authorities in Kiev have been concerned that the anniversary would see some renewal of state-sponsored cyber attack, which by consensus means Russian-directed. The sorts of attacks the country sustained include the black energy grid hacking incidents and, of course, not Petya, the pseudo-ransomware attack that moved quickly from its initial Ukrainian infestations to become a pandemic. Many of the concerns expressed centered on a pseudo-ransomware rerun, and it appeared briefly that such a campaign was in progress. The web server of Crystal Finance Millennium, an accounting software firm based in Kiev, has been found compromised with Pergen ransomware. But this attack seems simply criminal, not state-directed as was the case with NotPetya. Pergen has been on the server since August 18th, according to Kaspersky Labs, and security firm ISSP's analysis of the malware indicates that it's in all likelihood conventional ransomware being distributed with the aim of extorting money from its victims. The two stories are worth considering. They indicate the high degree of readiness people now have to see cyber attacks, especially state-directed espionage and sabotage, behind incidents that may in fact be simply criminal or accidental. 
It's good that general awareness of cyber risk is high and that people also understand the degree to which cyberspace has become a domain of international conflict. But it's also important to bring some healthy skepticism to the discussion. Attribution and even understanding can be notoriously difficult, and for all the warnings we've seen over the past two weeks of an impending cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber 9-11, it's worth reflecting that we're at least as likely to experience a cyber Tonkin Gulf incident where what we perceive as an attack turns out in the end to have been nothing at all. Christopher Pearson is Chief Security Officer and General Counsel for ViewPost, a secure payment network provider, and he's a regular guest here on the CyberWire. I caught up with him after Black Hat and DEF CON for his take on the trends he sees coming from those shows. At DEF CON this year, it was interesting. Three, uh, three real kind of high-level takeaways uh, from the event. Uh, first was that uh, when you take a look at application security, we still are not addressing this correctly. Uh, the services, the devices, the things that are being built, we're not building security in from an engineering perspective. So, so I think that's the first and f- uh, foremost thing that we have to tackle. We have to make sure that we're building uh, new products, new services, new devices securely and safely. And that starts with good engineering, good QA, good testing, and good cybersecurity awareness in the applications uh, first and foremost. Second, uh, the cloud controls. Cloud controls are definitely, definitely gaining in wisdom, gaining in expertise. At this point in time, I think there's kind of a full shift uh, from both Black Hat and DEF CON in terms of acceptance within the cybersecurity community that there are a sufficient uh, number of and type of and, and uh, diversity of cloud controls uh, that are there to protect and safeguard uh, data that we are storing in those instances. And then third, this kind of focus in on the user, the end user, and how are we actually enabling them for security? How are we actually providing them the security controls that they need in a transparent manner so that we're moving security away from their task, their goal, their to-dos, because whether it be patching or antivirus or VPN or or firewalls, uh, certainly we're seeing the same patterns exist in users uh, year after year without little change. We need to do something differently there, almost like the uh, the uh, card-based world of, of chip and pin and moving into a tokenized uh, basis for electronic transactions as opposed to mandating that PCI be this requirement of the mom-and-pop shops. So really pushing that further up the uh, further up the food chain. So those are kind of three high-level takeaways from, uh, from DEF CON in terms of overall observations. What about incentivizing? You know, we talk about, particularly with IoT devices, if the manufacturer has no incentive to do anything other than build a cheap device that people will will buy you know on Amazon and uh, the user is has no incentive to change the password or even update the firmware on the device if a vulnerability is discovered um, how do we put in proper incentives to make these things safer yeah I think that this is an area that we have to get better at I mean I can see this in really two different areas so first incentivizing companies to build safer more secure uh, products also make sure that they're adequately updated, that the firmware is being updated, that they're staying on top of things once these products are pushed out into the market. It isn't simply good enough to produce the device. You have to maintain the device in a safe and secure fashion, as especially with IoT, as these make it, as these devices make it their way into the homes. And I think that we can do a lot there through tax incentives and and other uh, uh, types of uh, economic incentives uh, for companies. The other thing that I think is interesting is is that 
On the build process, uh, I think that we can. there's a role for tax incentives to play in hiring. So, for example, maybe one out of every 30 uh, uh, individuals at the company, if they have a job that is a you know, security development lifecycle engineer where they're actually taught cybersecurity practices, best uh, practices in engineering, you know, maybe OWASP top 10 or SANS top 20 uh, threats, if they're actually taught about those and can more safely code uh, with those in mind, uh, there be some type of economic incentive that's paid back to the company. Maybe it's half their salary is a tax rebate. Um, maybe there's something in terms of education dollars so that you can actually take your current engineers and existing engineers and go ahead and provide for education that's uh, you know free and clear and sponsored in some form or fashion, uh, maybe even by the government, uh, and get education and training on secure development practices into the hands of the engineers. That's that's probably one of the biggest things. We need to stop. We can't necessarily stop everything on the back end in terms of firmware updates and patching and all the rest. We have to tackle this problem on the front end, which is better written code, safer written code, cybersecurity being a part of each product and service and really built in on the front end. I think if we have some large-scale IoT, especially IoT, uh, outages in this area or impacts in this area, um, that impact the personal safety and privacy of the home, I think you may see some movement in, in the right direction. Uh, but without that, the consumer is still fairly ill-informed. And our products, I mean, especially from DEF CON, the number of hacks uh, of IoT devices and the ease of penetration and the IoT uh, uh, capture the flag exercise uh, was just mind-boggling. Uh, very, very easy hacks. Uh, very easy compromises, very easy vulnerabilities, uh, should never have been in the products, uh, should never have rolled out to market uh, with some of those easy uh, easy hacks. That's Christopher Pearson from ViewPost. The United States government, in the form of both the FBI and the White House cybersecurity lead, continues to express concerns that Kaspersky products could be, in effect, virtual moles, working for Russia's FSB and reporting back to Moscow. Australia's government is similarly cautious about Huawei, which it wishes to block from installing a communications cable for the Solomon Islands that would transit Australian territory and networks. In this case, the concern is that Huawei products are a cat's paw for Chinese intelligence services. Both Kaspersky and Huawei say the suspicions are groundless and point out that the business they do with Moscow and Beijing is legitimate, no different from what a Silicon Valley company might do for Langley or Fort Meade. The security firm Mimecast warns of RopeMaker, a method of altering the content of emails after they've been received. A threat actor could inject malicious content via remote CSS files. Mimecast hasn't seen RopeMaker used in the wild yet. We were at the Chertoff Group's security series in Palo Alto, California yesterday, and we'll have accounts of the proceedings tomorrow. As a teaser, however, we'll ask two questions that the Chertoff Group posed to the audience. First, what does a medieval scholastic and Catalan poet have to do with artificial intelligence? And second, since when did being disruptive become a good thing and not something that earned you a trip to the vice principal's office? Write your answer 500 times on the blackboard, Silicon Valley. Look for answers to these and other questions raised at the conference in tomorrow's CyberWire Daily News Briefing. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. 
quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Uh, Joe, welcome back. You sent over an article about uh, some legislation that was introduced by Senator Richard Blumenthal. He's a Democrat from Connecticut. Yep. About um, medical device security and privacy and things like that. Uh, fill us in right. here. Right. Well, th- there's a, a large problem with uh, the security of medical devices um, and being that our institute is a Johns Hopkins affiliate. We've actually spent a, a lot of time looking at these things, and there are vulnerabilities out there in all these devices. I think in sure. the article that I sent you, there's a horror story about one device that had like 70-some vulnerabilities in it. Wow. Um, and in talking with people like Kevin Fu from the University of Michigan and some folks up at Dartmouth, uh, we work on a project for the called the Trustworthy Health and Wellness Project where we talk about exactly this issue. One of Kevin's points is that a standard statement from these device manufacturers is just put it on a secure network um, because you know we, we're not really wor- worried about working on security right now. And to an extent, there's a real needs-based issue here. And the story that was first enlightening to me uh, is that when a doctor is working on somebody, on a, on a patient, that if the security of the device gets in the way of the doctor providing the care, that security is going to go away because hmm. your security is, is impacting the provision of potentially life-saving care. The doctor in the emergency room never hears from the patient, make sure that my data stays secure. It's always make sure my heart is beating, make sure I can breathe, get these bullets out of me, right. those kind of things. So it's not really a very high priority, but it is a real problem. So what Senator Blumenthal's legislation does, one of the things it does is it tries to provide a report card 
for these these devices. I don't know exactly what he means by report card. Um, I don't, but apparently it's a security assessment of some kind of these devices that have the devices have to go through this assessment before they're available for sale. And on the surface, that sounds reasonable, but but That's you, have, right. you have some concerns. I do. My concern is who's going to be doing the testing? How is that going to be provided? Are these medical device manufacturers going to go out to third party testing organizations? whose product will essentially be, you know, a wink and a nod, you know, hey, your product's good to go. Uh, your product for the, is for the low, low price of low, low price of a thousand dollars. I'll give you a really good report card. There needs there definitely needs to be some supervision of this process, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's good to see, I suppose, that uh, that it's risen to the level of uh, getting attention from folks like Senator Blumenthal. I'm happy to see it being talked about at this level. Yeah. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on it. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.